Comfort is the killer of creativity. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Bill Miller. Coach Miller is a certified strength conditioning specialist that specializes in working with rotational athletes to improve their power. He just finished his book, Swing Fast, a guide for rotational development. And today we dove into how he really approaches developing rotational power for his baseball and javelin athletes. His measurements he uses to make sure his program is working and kind of how he balances the the whole process of strength and velocity and everything that goes into his training. I love this this podcast because I think you get to see two different coaches that coach usually different athletes that have very similar approaches, even though the athletes are so different in what their sport is. And like, at the end of the day, you need to create buy-in with your athletes. At the end of the day, you need to be making sure your program is working by having measurable approaches and then making sure the athletes know what that measurable approach is and why it really matters to their sport. Thank you guys for listening, and I hope you guys get something out of this one. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. Thank you so much. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got to where you're at right now, kind of how you got into the field of sports performance and uh, specifically your expertise for rotational athletes? Yeah, so I train uh, mostly baseball players just outside of Chicago and Palatine, Illinois. And my big thing has always just been trying to get athletes to transfer everything in the weight room over to their sport. Uh, So I guess like my background is I I played baseball growing up and I played through college and I tried to play professionally. I got signed with a few independent ball teams. I'm not sure if you're familiar at all with that, but independent ball is kind of like the lowest rung of the totem pole when it comes to baseball, professional baseball, stuff like that. And what I really began to find later in my career was that I was very strong. Like I worked my butt off in the weight room. I followed everything West, West side barbell, Louis Simmons. If he said it, I was doing it. And I was very elite when it came to the weight room compared to a lot of these other baseball players that I was playing with at the professional level. And even at the low professional level, I'm way stronger than these guys. And they're still throwing faster than me. They're still hitting balls much farther than me. I could barely get balls out in batting practice. And I was six foot, 230 pounds of pretty solid muscle. And it was just, it it just wasn't transferring. And that's kind of where I started to think a little bit differently about training. I said, well, it's not that weight training and strength training is a bad thing. It's that we have to understand what that athlete's needs are. And it took all the way until I got released twice by professional baseball teams to realize my training wasn't transferring to the field anymore. My needs are different than someone who is a high school kid who's never strength trained before. And that's kind of where I, I started to grow as a coach before I really started doing it. And then I got into coaching kind of in the off seasons, a little bit outside of the, uh, like, uh, in the off seasons in, in baseball, you really have like so much downtime. You have to get involved with baseball coaching in some capacity just to pass the time. And, uh, and it worked out for me because I got to train athletes out of this facility and I got to train for free in the facility. So it worked out great. And then, um, and in those years, I really started to figure out, okay, training, has to transfer to the field. It's going to look different. It's going to be different than what I did as a 16 year old in order for me to reach my pinnacle and performance. And obviously I never really did. I wasn't a great baseball player, but that kind of set me up as a coach to want to try to learn those sorts of things. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, I guess. I I, I love that approach in that story because I think I was very similar. 
Um, same thing too. Like I was Olympic lifts first and then I was West side, like whatever he said, like that's the answer. And the Joe DeFranco method. And then it was like very strong. And again, you, you look at the competition on the field and when you guys are training in the weight room, you're like, all right, I'm a beast. I should be able to dominate. And then you get onto the field with these same athletes and you're like, Whoa, like, where is that disconnect? Like what's actually happening here? So I love that you mentioned that because I have a very similar backstory with my own athletic career. I, yeah. I'm, I'm interested then in finding out you, you make this connection. And because I, I love this approach too, is like you, you make that connection and that's almost like the first step to the whole approach is like realizing that you were blind. But mm -hmm. what was your, what then was your step to kind of open your eyes a little bit more and discover like, all right, what is this part that transfers? Like what, what is that missing link that I'm doing? Like yeah. what was that kind of journey for you? Like, yeah. So it's a really weird story. I mean, it's not extremely weird, but it's um, surprising to people when I tell them this. I learned more about baseball strength and conditioning from a guy named Chris Beardsley than anybody else. I'm not sure if you follow Chris Beardsley at all. He's a, um, he runs SNC research on Instagram and most of the things he talks about revolve around like bodybuilding training and, and all these infographs that he puts out are, are more geared towards that. But he has a handful of information and research on high velocity strength. And I'll never forget, like I had a couple emails with him back and forth. And I was telling him about the training that I do. And I was asking him, like, hey, what do you think about speed deadlift? What do you think about this training method for baseball players? And he really, like, came down hard on me. He said, no, Bill, like, I think that everything you're doing is tra in training is wrong. And I would like to get on a podcast or not a podcast, it's like a, a Skype call to talk about why. And, and back then, that's about three, three and a half years ago, I was so shook. I was so rattled that somebody told me your training methods suck. And and it was something that I really had to grow as a coach to realize like, Hey, there are going to be people who have different ideas than you on training. It's okay to be wrong on things. It's okay for them to be right on things. And it's okay to kind of pair, know what you did in the past that was right. Realize what you're doing currently. That's not right. And then you can kind of, you know, glue it all together to make a good program. And so in that first call that I had with Chris Beardsley, I learned a lot about like, why high velocity strength training is so effective for athletes. And, but probably the thing that I learned the most was that no matter what training you do, you have to have a way to assess and make sure that your strength training program is working. And the moment that you have some sort of a measure, a high velocity strength measure that you could say, look, we're doing all of these uh, strength training methods, deadlift, bench press, split squat this month, but it's all going to transfer to the field because this exercise with the medicine ball is improving. This sprint is improving. That's where the mindset has to shift. And that was a big change for me because instead of putting on the, the leaderboard, all of our one rep maxes in the squat bench and deadlift, the leaderboard changed to how fast you're throwing this three pound medicine ball. How far are you broad jumping? How high are you vertical jumping? And, and, and that sort of thing. And that was a big shift for me as a coach, but I think it all kind of started in just being okay with being wrong, being okay with having that somebody to, to tell you, Hey, Bill, like your training sucks. And, and, and me being okay with that, I swear, like, you know, so I've been pretty active on social media now for like two, three years on strength training. And when I first started, all I ever wanted to do is be like Eric Cressy. I wanted to do everything he did, talk about it the way he did, be super smart the way Eric Cressy is. And I really got shook whenever people would make a comment like, Hey, Bill, I don't agree with this. Like it would rattle me for the whole day. And now like my mindset's kind of shifted where I'm like, I'm good with people arguing with me. I'm good with people disagreeing with me. And I actually kind of welcome it now 
And it, it stems from that idea of having something to prove that training's working, if that makes sense. No, and I, I love that. We just had Brett Adams on a podcast and he was talking about as a coach, like he doesn't want anybody in his circle telling him he's right or he's great. Like he wants to yeah. only surround himself with people that are going to challenge us because that's again, how you open up your eyes and like start to realize some of these things. So I think that's, that's an awesome point. And it's kind of how you grow. Uh, right. So once you kind of, you make that connection and, and you, you start to grow and you start to shift this program and mindset, was it, was your approach? All right this coach said this, I'm going to try it out with myself and experiment in that way. Or was it like full dive into, all right, every, all my athletes are doing this. Like we're checking this out. Like you, and you even mentioned like that high velocity strength method. Like what was that kind of like gradual shift? You got your eyes open. You're like, all right, I'm wrong. Like I need to approach this a different way. What was that next kind of step to yeah. approach yeah, training? It, it was definitely a, like, it was definitely a bit of a process. The first thing that I did was I, I had maybe eight athletes I was training with personally at the time. And what I did was I just said, okay, guys, we're going to take this light medicine ball and we're going to throw it at the radar gun and we're going to see what you get. And, and just to see if I could create some sort of competition with it. And it worked like the competition started, but it didn't really start to sink in with the guys until I made like the leaderboard and, and put, okay, two pound medicine ball shot, put throw three pound medicine ball overhead throw this is the exercise that I'm going to put up on the board and we're going to see who gets the fastest with it. And then once that happened, I think it started to click more with the athletes I trained. Um, especially because what I would do is I had medicine ball overhead throw right next to baseball, like throwing velocity. And we started to see, Oh, the guys who are the best at throwing the medicine ball overhead are also the best at throwing velocity. Now I'm going to say like, it's not a direct correlation. Like just cause you throw a medicine ball hard doesn't necessarily mean you'll throw a baseball hard, but it's a lot closer than deadlift one rep max, which our best thrower in here is maybe like sixth or seventh on the leaderboard in deadlift one rep max. Like he's not the best deadlifter. He's not the best bench presser, but he throws the best. And that's where I wanted to start shifting the mindset of like everything we do here in the weight room matters because it's going to transfer to the field. We're not just doing it to get jacked anymore. Like that, that mindset has to go away. Uh, especially for baseball players, man, it's such a, such a weird sport. It, it throwing is just a weird action. It's high velocity. Mobility is probably the biggest factor there in the upper extremities. But we also see that when you got a skinny string being kid who throws really hard and his bench press improves, he also improves throwing velocity too. So it, there's kind of that balancing act there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is, uh, that's why I'm very interested in to dive into kind of the throwing world because there's so much there. And I, I, I was a thrower of track. I was a track and field thrower. So it's the same kind of like, there's a lot of weird aspects where, like you said, like there's a lot of mobility issues. There's a lot of technique issues that go into there, but there's also the strength fishing side of it. And that's why I kind of geek out about these, these things because it's the hodgepodge of everything. I want to mm -hmm. talk about a little bit of like the, you mentioned like the leaderboards and kind of what gets measured improves a little bit. And I think this is important because as a coach, once you start to, and I think, and especially when I look back at my own training and my own like kind of approach to training when I was growing up is I always wanted to squat more and bench more because I knew that was what was going up on the board. I knew that was what the coach was going to reward. And because the coach was going to reward that, I thought that's what led to improvement on the field or improvement on Fridays or that type of stuff. And that, that's why I pushed myself. And I think that's, like you mentioned it briefly, but I think that's such a powerful point for a coach like you to emphasize with your kids. Like this is what's being measured. And this is what I value as a coach, because you know, that's actually going to lead to an performance on whenever they play. And then they start to value these things and they start to get yeah. educated about these things rather than just continuing to try and push that squat and bench more. And like you said, you need that foundation of it, but if that's all they see the coach valuing and all they see their coach like rewarding, that's all they're going to continue to push forward. Oh yeah. I agree a hundred percent. And it's like, 
So then like with that mindset, um, I started to say, okay, well, if we just threw medicine balls all the time, wouldn't that improve it as well? And I started to like realize like that's not the best approach either. Obviously you have to have that mix of both and you have to have a way of screening athletes to see who should be doing more heavy strength training, who should be doing more medicine balls and sprints and, and jumps. And this is where Chris Beardsley really helped me the most is, is he helped me develop a force velocity profile method. And it's super simple. All we're doing is taking a 10 pound, six pound and two pound medicine ball and throwing it at the Raider gun. If you throw the 10 pound medicine ball really well, but the two pound medicine ball, you don't throw very well, then you're probably looking at somebody who is relatively velocity deficient. That would be me. That would be me at the end of my career where I'm really strong, but I don't transfer it to those high speeds. But a lot of times you're going to see those high school kids. Like I just measured somebody two days ago who had, uh, I think their two pound ball was like 36 miles an hour. The six pound ball was like 28 ish, but the 10 pound ball, they were really bad. They were like 19 miles an hour. So you see that big drop off there. That's what we're looking to, to try to see where are they weakest. Now we say, okay, Kevin or whoever that kid is doing that medicine ball throw. We see that you're weak with this 10 pound ball. We can do more heavy strength training for this muscle group and that muscle group. And that helps a lot for sure. Um, cause that, that helps point you in the right direction. It's not going to write your program for you, but having that compass is huge to me with the force velocity profiles. Yeah, that's freaking awesome. I do the same thing. And it's, it's with a lot of our athletes, we do some vertical jump testing, but the, mm -hmm. again, like you said, like once you're able to realize, and this, this is how I approach training in a, a big aspect is like, what are they missing? You know, like yeah. what, what are they missing? You can have a kid come in here, squat 500 pounds, but maybe they're missing something on the field. And then that's what we're going to spend 90% of our time in. But then you have the other kid that again, he can run super fast. He can cut super fast and he comes in here and, and he can't do these things. All right, let's spend more time there. But like you said, it's not, it's not going to write your program for yourself, but it, it makes things so much clearer for you to be like, what can I give that athlete that he doesn't currently have? And hopefully right. that bridges the gap for you to make that next jump for him. Right. Yeah. And, and probably the biggest thing that I learned too, along the way was like, we're giving them what they need. We're giving them what they're missing, but we also don't want to take away what makes that athlete great in the first place. Especially if you got a big, strong kid, he's big and strong. He's probably going to be like a pretty powerful hitter. Like that's just what he does. He's not going to be a speedy base runner. He's going to be a guy that hits for home runs. So we always want to try to enhance that as well. And, and what I kind of started to see was I started to get some bigger, stronger college athletes that were in that velocity deficient range. All I did was just shift the uh, sort of the ratio of programming from heavy to speed, I just shifted a little bit more speed. That was it. Like we still did a lot of heavy strength training. It was just a lot of heavy singles and doubles. It wasn't a lot of hypertrophy work. It wasn't a lot of uh, high volume stuff. It was just, all right, we're going to get four sets of two today, five sets of one. Just make sure your maximal strength is still there. And then we're maximizing that speed portion as well. That kind of marries that concept of like giving the athlete what they need and making sure that they're still good at what makes them great. You know what I mean? You know, I don't want a, a big, strong power hitter to lose strength. I want them to maintain it or even improve it. But we have to improve that high velocity into the equation too. Yeah, and I love that because it, it just, and it, this is talked about a lot in the strength conditioning world, but like the, the actual approach to like microdosing something like that, you know, like, and it makes total sense. And to me, like you, you said that like you don't, just straight dive into the velocity aspect and you just throw out your whole program and throw out all these things because that athlete needs velocity. And I think a lot of that is like, to me, a little bit of like the law of diminishing return. And he's just never, he's never been exposed to that stimulus. So once he does get even just a time, and I know it myself because I've done it to myself. Like 
once I really, st- and I'm on the, I'm on the force aspect as well. Like 100% yeah. was on that force aspect. And when I just gave myself just a tiny dose of that velocity aspect, like things just started to take off. And I was like, all right, like you said, like you don't need to jump off the deep end and all this, but give them, give them a little bit of stimulus and eventually we'll grow and continue to adapt our programs, but just microdose some of these things and continue to progress your athletes in that way. I, yeah, a hundred percent agree with that. That's to me, that's the, the art of programming. You know what I mean? It's why you have, really have to know your stuff. Um, you can't just fly off the handle because you saw something on social media, but yeah, I, I, I agree with that hundred percent. And I'm interested now, and we, we, we touched on it, but you have these throwing athletes Like you have these like weird athletes where there's so many things and pieces that need to go into this athlete. What are kind of like, like, what is your approach to kind of balancing all of these things? Cause you, mm-hmm. you have that strength aspect. You have the technique aspect of this athlete that needs to be able to throw in a certain way to make sure he stays healthy or just throws for max velocity. And then you have the, the, the mobility aspect to make sure he's able to get into these positions. Like what's kind of your approach to, blend everything together into creating the athlete that is the thrower and the hitter and the rotational athlete. Right. Yeah. It, it's tough. I would say the, the first thing that has been really important uh, for the guys that I train is we'll test fatigue and readiness on a daily basis, because I don't care what lift or what throwing session you're on. If you are relatively fatigued heading into that session, you're not going to get anything out of it if it's for power or velocity production. So if I'm gassed from the deadlifting day I did yesterday, and I got to throw for the radar gun today, my throwing is going to struggle. So what I really wanted to start doing with guys was finding these fatigue readiness testing methods to make sure that they're right before we even head into a throwing session or a weightlifting session, anything. And if they're not, then we're simply going to have them go super low intensity and send them home. That's the best way to do it, in my opinion. So that way you make sure that whenever it's time to throw, whenever it's time to swing, whenever it's time to lift, on your sprints, you're always at a high level of readiness. So you're focused on it and your technique is going to be good, but you're also going to have the most power that you can produce from your central nervous system and what have you. That's huge to me. Uh, you know, so the, the way I usually do it is you can do it a lot of ways, but just the grip strength test works really well. And if the guy is, has his grip strength down by, I don't know, more than 5% after a good warm up, they might be fatigued and you might have to find ways to, um, go through a, like a better warm up, more potentiating warm up, maybe, uh, to see if you can get that grip strength up. But if the grip strength's not there, their central, ner- their central nervous system is probably pretty shot. So, um, that's the main idea there, honestly. I like that. And then, and then we, we, we get there at the athlete, like he, he, he's ready to train for that day and he, he's ready to go. What's kind of like, run me through what, what a day in a, in the life of an athlete working yeah. with you would kind of look like then. Yeah. So, th- and, and then, so, okay, they go through their warm up. they're ready to go. The first thing we'll do is they're throwing work. They're throwing specific exercises. They're throwing specific warm-up with, uh, like we like to go through the driveline routine with the reverse throws and all those exercises you might see on, on their websites. But, um, and then we'll go into like uh, a throwing session. The one that I like the most is, it's, I think it's called the Soviet drill, where the athlete will literally be throwing for the radar gun or for distance at the lowest intent possible, just super relaxed and whippy. And then you try to hit that next mark, try to get three miles per hour faster, as relaxed as you could be. Keep going up like that. Never try to tense up to throw, try to be as relaxed as possible. And that's kind of been like a big cue of mine lately for, for technique purposes, just to make sure that the kid is creating a whip like action. And, And that's really huge to me, but that's kind of the, I don't get too much into a lot of internal cues other than that, other than be relaxed, be a whip. Um, yet to be honest with you, I don't think internal cues help a lot of guys all that much. It might help some guys, 
but I think far too often coaches have hammered a lot of these kids with, you know, stand your back leg and, and do this with your finish and do this with your follow through rather than just be a loose, explosive athlete. And, um, and the radar gun doesn't lie. You know, if, if we're trying to get 80 miles an hour on the gun and you're only getting 72, then something is wrong, uh, that day. So that's, that's kind of my main, um, main idea behind like the throwing specific work. And then, uh, honestly, after that, it's kind of just, all right, let's just, you know, if you're feeling good, let's get into weight training stuff. You know, we'll look at video if we need to, but to be honest, I don't get into, um, a lot of the, uh, sort of the more technical aspects that you might find like a true pitching coach would. I'm kind of the guy that's just there monitoring and holding the radar gun and trying to give them tips as I go. <laughs> and I, I love the, the aspect of kind of the, the athlete. If you give them a measurement, like the athlete is going to self-correct and figure it out. And I think and I, this is what I talk to a lot about like with coaches nowadays is I think like we as coaches are almost jacking our athletes up and stealing athleticism more than we're giving them because we want to be able to like fix them. You see it a lot in the sprinting world with football is like, you try to fix them with that straight arm or you try to fix them with these, these, these coaching cues that when you watch the grades do it, you watch like a kid just naturally run. Like they don't do these things, but we as coaches want it to look good and we want it to look this certain way. So yeah. we try to do it. And I, I love the point of like, you said like the, the athlete is going to figure it out himself. Like eventually he's going to figure it out, especially when you have that radar gun there and your goal is just to not have that athlete tense up, not have that athlete try to force something that is going to take mm -hmm. away from his natural athleticism and his natural throwing. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. And, and, uh, so I'll do a lot of hitting training, like swinging and stuff like that as well. And it's a lot of the same idea. I don't try to provide them with a lot of internal cues, you know, do this with your hands, do this with your foot. A lot of it is just, okay, hit this ball, see what the radar gun says. Okay. Try to get it higher. Try to do this, try to do that with the radar gun telling us if the ball is coming off faster or not. And then of course hitting is different because you have to react to that challenging stimulus. So I'll get up on the mound and I'll throw, you know, at bats to the hitters and I'll try to like dice them up with nasty pitches and everything. To me, that's really important. Like they have to get that sort of challenging stimulus as a hitter to, to react to different types of pitching and just giving them a challenging stimulus is, is what I try to provide to the guys. I don't try to diagnose a lot of the technique stuff. I kind of leave it up to them to figure it out. And I just go up there and, you know, throw as hard as I can at them sometimes. But yeah, that to me, that's, it's kind of the best way to do it because from someone in my position, I don't get to be just their hitting coach. I don't just get to be their throwing coach. I have other things to do with them. The other things that I'm more of an expert in quote unquote. So I kind of want to give my mind a break from that. And I think in doing so, I'm kind of just letting these kids grow on their own in terms of their own baseball specific technique and everything. So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good way to do it for me, I guess. No, and I, I love that. One thing I'm actually interested in is that hitting aspect and the aspect of getting that output into like his natural swing, if this makes sense and getting the, you, you, you have this batter that is able to get a high number off that radar gun and just explode off that radar gun. Now, how are you trying to get this athlete to transition this into the, that reactionary mindset of now he has to kind of establish that into a swing where you never know, really know what pitch is coming and he actually has to hit and he has to create a hitting solution to that ball, that movement ball that, that that's coming at him and trying to get all this tr transition into his bat. Well, the ball is moving. He has to predict a, predict a throw and predict the situation and predict what's going to happen. Yeah, man, it, it is very tough. Like you said, I think a lot of it comes down to being in the correct body positions at the start. If you're hitting off of a T, if you're hitting off of 
uh, machine or whatever that's throwing live at bats to you, if you're hitting live at bats off a pitcher, if you get your hips to hinge the exact same way that you're doing off the tee, if you're getting your shoulders in the same exact position to start your swing, then we know we can explode as fast as we can off the tee from there. If your mechanics are different off the tee from, okay, you're, you're coiling a lot more, you hinge a lot more off of the tee, then obviously you're not going to be able to transfer that over to the field. So I guess you do want to make sure that that starting position is the same as what it would be like in a game. Like you don't want to change that up too much. But after that, it's honestly just provide the stimulus to them, throw live at bats to them, give them something difficult. Like I'll take the mound and I'll shorten it down by about 15 feet and just throw darts at them as hard as I can. That's teaching them that they can respond to the stimulus and still explode the way they need to. Um, but I guess like, like you kind of mentioned, there is that disconnect there sometimes, and that can get really difficult if you're not really like challenging the hitter on a consistent basis with those faster pitching or the, the pitching that moves left and right really fast, then they might not have that ability, that cognitive awareness to be able to transfer that very seamlessly. I, I love that aspect of like moving the mound around and moving the pitches and just giving them a different stimulus. And I think it allows them to be kind of confident in all hitting situations, you know, like yeah. they are confident in so many different situations than just maybe, maybe it's the soft toss that that one coach gives them or just I mean, even you even see like a lot of kids just all they take is off the tee and they, they have the perfect mechanics off the tee, but they're again, not like you said, co cognitively uh, competent enough when that live pitch is coming at them. And I love that you've given them a different approach and different stimulus there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And you can look at the mechanics of it, but in, in all honesty, a lot of it's, it's happening in the brain, you know, the brain and, and just that the ability to visualize a pitch and see it and do the right actions that you're supposed to do. It takes practice. It takes a lot of reps. And I, I'm interested in now you mentioned now you're the expertise in this other aspect and yeah. uh, in, in the strength conditioning, sports performance realm, whatever you want to call it, but kind of, we're done with this throwing session. We're done there. We, we, we've worked this force velocity aspect. Like what are some of, maybe it's, maybe you call them special exercises or your, your high velocity strength, but what is kind of your, your exercises to really work on this rotational strength, this rotational power being built in the, the weight room, being built in the sports performance center that you uh, are the expert at? Yeah, I would say the, the first one is pretty simple. Just literally taking a medicine ball at, a, at hip height and throwing it like a rotational scoop toss into the radar gun. My opinion, that tells you a lot right there because your, your rotational capabilities are going to be basically the same from here on down as it is with, with swinging a bat and the radar gun's not going to lie. If you can transfer force really fast with that medicine ball, you're probably going to be very powerful when you're swinging your implement. And, uh, that's for the really like the first one that I go to, but the other one that I've been going to more recently is this medicine ball rotational exercise. It's like the same exercise, but instead of throwing it, you stop the movement. So you imagine you're swinging the ball backwards, forwards as fast as you can, you stop that ball. I, what I've started to learn is the way that the core transfers energy. You know, we always talk about having a strong core with baseball players, and that's important. But one of the reasons why is because that core rotates and accelerates really fast. And then that segment of the kinetic chain has to stop. It has to decelerate in order to let the limbs really maximize their acceleration window, if you will. So that torso deceleration aspect is something I really want to start to uh, look at with guys and how they can rotate with this heavy ball really fast backwards and then stop it on a dime. That to me shows that they have great core stability, great core strength that will transfer energy 
into their swing. So those are the two really big ones that I've been looking at recently. Let's say uh, like progression regressions with this is, is your main focus changing the, the size of the medicine ball, changing sets and reps? Is it the just trying to same medicine ball, trying to get higher on the radar gun? Like what's kind of your progression? You have an athlete for 12 weeks. Is it the same thing? Same throws every week? Like how, how do you approach that? Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll track the, those three different medicine ball sizes, the two, six and the 10, and just see what's improving the most. Is that 10 pound improving more than the others? That's great. We're improving force production, but how is that two pound medicine ball improving? So I'm kind of looking to see there, which medicine balls are improving the most, which ones are lacking. And then you can kind of program, all right, we're going to go say six sets of three rotational medicine ball throws today. And four of those sets are going to be with the lighter ball because you're a strong guy that needs to do more of that work. But it's honestly coming down to just consistent measurement. If we measure each ball every couple of weeks, we know which ones are improving, we know which ones aren't. And that's going to dictate the next three, four sessions that they have with that medicine ball. So that's kind of a big one for me uh, with the medicine balls there. I like that a lot. And I think that's something that I think a lot, a lot of coaches could really implement like day one, like that, that's right away. You could you start implementing the different size medical medicine balls at a different size speed and really trying to see how they improve. I like that it's consistent and really gives you direction for the program. Mm-hmm. This is, we mentioned a little bit about mobility and this is something that I think a lot of times can get bastardized in the strength conditioning world or just overemphasized. But like, what is your approach to the mobility aspect of your rotational athletes? And we talk about, you have a lot of throwers. I know I've seen it a ton where you have this PT approach with throwers where all they're doing is some band exercises all day and they never actually get any strength work in. And like, what's kind of your approach to, still get that mobility aspect, but not give them the like, all right, you're a baby, you're fragile. Like we're just going to do some exercises with the band to not hurt you quotation mark. Right. Yeah. And, and that is tough. It, it's something that I'm going to be a hundred percent honest with you. I wish I was better at, I wish I was more knowledgeable in this mobility field, but you can always grow as a coach. Right. Um, I guess with the way I've approached it up to this point is in their warm up setting, try to get them a mobility exercise that they can hammer out in every single like segment of the chain, the T-spine, the hips, everything. And so we will basically go with that. And then if we begin to notice three, four weeks down the road, hey, Bill, I think I can get more layback in my throws. My shoulder's not externally rotating very well. Okay, let's do maybe some sort of an end range isometric where we can really specifically target that exercise. I love end range isos. I feel like they flat out work if you, if you do them properly, but, um, it's, yeah, it's one of those things like I won't really target it unless it's kind of like a give and take thing. Like if the athlete shows me that they need it and, um, you know, obviously their numbers, we want to make sure that those are improving too. If those numbers aren't improving, we've got to go somewhere. So adding in that extra mobility work to target those spots might be good, but you know, like I said, I'm not an expert in, at all in mobility. So no, I, 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 lo- I mean, I love that approach. And that's something that I think I do as well with my athletes is kind of give them the general, like, all right, we're going to open up all parts of the chain, just give them that general aspect. And if you're, we're really seeing something, really seeing something that is keeping them from doing another aspect, then, then that's when we're going to focus on it. But we're not going to spend our entire time focusing on some of these small things when I think we could be building big blocks. Um, I'm interested in that. This just made me think of this when I, when I brought up that band aspect, but you were working in, in, the world of baseball where I know and I basketball is similar, but you, you have the stigma of like, they, they, they don't have to lift, you know, like the, you, mm. you have some of these athletes or maybe it's teams, maybe it's coaches, but they, they don't have to lift. I think with the football guys, like yeah, the, a lot of reasons 
guys play football just because they're big. And then you, you automatically like have guys that want to be like, it's almost too much. Like they're too big of meatheads for their own. Yeah. Like you want to get them outside and play their sport more, but what is kind of your educational process and like approach to emphasizing with an athlete? Like here is why we need to deadlift. Here's why we need to build strength. Here's why we need to train rather than mm-hmm. just hitting and pitching and that type of stuff. Yeah. It, I, I think what I like to do is break down, like just break down the kinetic chain and show them, Hey, look, your hips have to extend every great hitters. Every great hitter goes from hip hinge to hip extension very powerfully. That's part of the reason that they uh, hit so well. So that looks like a deadlift, right? That's what we're working on with deadlift. And when you kind of break it down to them like that, like this segment of the chain is doing this job, we'll train it like this in the weight room and see if it works. See three, four weeks down the road, if that's improving, then we know we're going to, we're moving you in the right direction. So it's, um, that's one way that I really like to go about doing it and kind of explaining the way certain muscle groups kind of work as like accelerators for the, the kinetic chain while others really have to decelerate a lot, you know? So like kind of teaching them, like we can train for acceleration with a lot more power-based methods. We can train for that speed aspect with like the pecs, for instance, we want those to be super explosive when we throw. So we want to train those to be explosive when we're medicine ball passing or doing plyo pushups or something like that. And kind of explaining it to them like that, I think is a really easy way to combine those two ideas between this, the, the, the strength training world and the sports specific world. But yeah, that's the way I like to go about it. Yeah. I, I, we keep bringing it back, but it, it comes back to your, your ability to have that measurement for them. Like mm-hmm. you, you can explain it to them as much as you want. You can talk to them like, Hey, this deadlift looks like this, this looks like this, but if you can show them like, Hey, the radar gun is saying this, that's where I think, you're really going to get a lot of buy-in with those athletes. Like, all right, he, uh, all right. He says the deadlift looks like this. All right. Maybe we'll keep doing it, keep doing it. But then you show them, all right, that two pound med ball increased like five miles per hour. Then they're like, okay, yeah, this stuff's working. Right. Yeah. And, and so a really cool example that I just had recently, um, over the, uh, over mm-hmm. since like the quarantine started about, I want to say about five, six months ago, right? About five months ago. Right. Yeah. Right yeah. around there. Yeah. So when college athletes came back and we started working, what, like we didn't have access for a lot of these guys to go in the weight room and do a lot of like rows and deadlifts and stuff like that. So a lot of it was just like, all right, here's some equipment that I have for my weight room trained from home. And one of the exercises that we would do quite frequently with, uh, one of the kids was it was an eccentric overload raising exercise with the shoulder. And when you look at the kinetic chain, the way a throw works, the rear shoulder has to have a lot of eccentric strength in order to decelerate that arm. Those muscle groups are lengthening in that state. And if you're not strong eccentrically, you're not going to be able to decelerate that throwing arm very well. So we've been doing this eccentric overload raising exercise for the past like five months. And I swear to God, at first, everybody's like, Bill, this just makes my arm sore. It's, it's, uh, it feels like Nordic hamstring curls. I hate Nordic hamstring curls. I don't want to do these anymore. And well, nobody got hurt. Everybody's arm is healthy. And this one kid threw like 102 miles an hour. Like he went like four miles an hour up over, you know, the, the Corona break, if you will. So I'm like, geez, like these work, right? And they're like, yeah, I want to do more of these now. So it really does come down to actually like showing them their measurements, showing them th- that they are improving and obviously having an idea of behind what might work for them. That's awesome. Yeah. The, the, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate buy-in, like used to do the same thing with Nordics. I, I had an athlete that every athlete hate Nordics. I, I really haven't found one that loves them, but yeah. I had an athlete with hamstring issues a lot. And that was one thing that really helped his hamstrings, um, like feel good in camp for him. He started running. He's like, man, I'm going to do Nordics every summer. Now I'm like, you complain yeah. about them every day. I put them in your program. But now that you see results from me, you're like, oh, I'll do them every day. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's 
to me, that's, it's the biggest piece of the puzzle for sure. And then the, the one thing, and b- before we get into the rapid fire round, and this is a question that I love asking the coaches is kind of what has been your biggest eye opener to your approach to training recently? Maybe it's the, maybe it's today, maybe it's something you read today, maybe it's the past week, maybe it's the past year, but what's kind of been that, that eye opener, like idea, like, all right, th- this is kind of where I'm going to dive down next. Yeah, it's definitely like the throwing like throwing specifically, but based around like mobility needs. I like, I've seen it with, um, with the guys that made a lot of progress over this quarantine break. The ones who made the most progress are the ones who have the best shoulder mobility. The ones who can create a ton of layback, a ton of horizontal abduction, you know, just get their, their arms in these crazy positions. They're the ones who throw hard. So obviously we don't want to make them more mobile, but if you cannot create those, positions because of a mobility restriction, I got to figure out a way for those guys to get there. You know what I mean? And it's a really challenging aspect because if you're a fully grown adult, you're probably not looking at a whole lot of joint laxity that you can just create on a whim. You know, with younger kids, those gymnasts, those, those kids can hang around all day and their joints are going to go, but with with a fully grown adult, you're probably not going to have that ease of creating more mobility with them. So I don't know. It's something that I want to dive into. I want to see if it's something that really can be addressed. and, and how to get it. If when you have somebody who is more restricted mobility wise, how can you get them that mobility? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's like totally true. And you, like you said, you, you watch a really good, really good thrower and, and it has that approach of like that major whip and a major position. And like, I look at like myself throwing a ball and it's like, man, I, there's not even, I can't even get close to those positions. Same here. And yeah. Yeah. We, exactly. can, we can increase outputs all we want, but if, I can't physically get into that position. Like, am I ever going to be able to use that output of my lower body of my hips into my arm because I can't get into that whipping position. Right. Exactly. And, and it was really something like I want to try to take like the next year, year and a half, two years to really try to learn it. But yeah, it's, um, it's a challenging thing because there's not a whole lot of research out about it anyways. Like I was trying to research the other day about like end range isometrics. And if there's any research on that shows it works, what methods work, there's nothing out there that I could find at least. So I I think, I think they work, but I don't know for sure. It's something I'm going to have to learn a lot more about. I love it. The experiment and we can transition now to the rapid fire rounds. And these are questions that I ask all my guests. Um, Your question, your answer can be as long as you want, as short as you want, but my, my, I'm going to try and keep my questions short, but the first one is kind of your favorite books, uh, books that have kind of got you to the mindset that you're in books that performance wise that you think the readers can get a lot out of. Yeah. Uh, the two that I think are training related, I would say are strength is specific by Chris Beardsley. I'd mentioned Chris a little bit before he's been a huge help for my career and he's been a big, uh, one of those people that challenged me a lot and, and, and the way he thought, and the more I've dived, you know, I've, I've gotten into his research and stuff and it's really helpful stuff. I would say strength is specific and super training by Yuri Berkashansky is outstanding. I love that book. Yeah. That, that to me, those two are, are probably the best training related ones. The one that throws a lot of people off, I tell them my favorite book is Moby Dick and it's, it, it's such a hard book to read. It's, it's written really strangely. It's, it was written in the 1800s. Like the language part doesn't really make a lot of sense, but just this idea of like chasing after a goal, chasing after something that makes no sense to some people but if it makes sense to you, you should go and attack it. I love that mentality. And uh, it's something I, I do try to like, I don't want to go and kill whales or anything, but I want to try to chase strength and conditioning for baseball players as much as I possibly can. You know what I mean? 
yeah, and you, you talk about chasing a goal that not doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. And that's pretty much every strength conditioning coach out there. Like everybody's right. looking like, why are you chasing that? Like what, what's, what's in it for you? But it's like, if it's your Moby Dick, like it, that, that's what gets you up and motivated for the day. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then next question, uh, and it's kind of how we grow this podcast and how we continue to network through this podcast, but who is a guest that you think we should have on that can take the, the guests down this rabbit hole? Uh, let's see. Uh, the one guy that I really like lately is Tyler Ansman. He doesn't have, uh, like the biggest following or maybe only a few thousand guys following him on Instagram and stuff, but he is somebody that is really like that experimental coach. He's still, I know for a fact, he still throws and stuff like that on his Instagram page and he's training athletes at the same time. I think it's a really unique guy to get a, a an approach from somebody that has got one foot in both worlds, that, that strength training and throwing specific world as a coach. And he's still a player. And I, I think tapping into his brain a little bit would be really cool just to see like, how does he balance that? How does he balance his own training? Like, I don't get it. He's in great shape and he throws gas and just everything uh, that, that he could offer, I think would be great. Boom. I love that. Anybody that keeps skin in the game, that, that's yeah. somebody that I usually respect. And usually they're learning something when they keep skin in the game. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then the next question, and maybe this is within the next year, maybe it's within the next five years, but what's kind of next for you? What's kind of that next big goal, the next big thing that you're reaching for the next thing you're looking forward to? Yeah. Well, something really cool right now. I'm releasing my first ever book. It's called swing fast, a guide to rotational uh, power development. And it's man, that book was tough to write. Like if you ever plan to write a book, that's more than uh, like 15, 20 pages, it is going to drive you bonkers at how much work goes into it, man. But that's the big thing for me right now is just releasing this book and making sure that it's, it's going to get, uh, it's going to get out to enough people. I, I, I'm a terrible businessman. Like I don't know a damn thing about business. So I'm, I'm kind of like learning as I go here, how, how to, uh, how to tell people about the book without like being a nag, without being a sellout, you know? So it's an interesting process, but man, is it, it was fun. I'll say that for sure. Like, for the first two months when uh, quarantine started, all I did was write. And, and that, that was like big, like I got most of the content done. But then since then, it was just like, you know, editing and formatting and getting all the crap to go right on Kindle was just like a pain in the ass. <laughs> and when, when is that uh, book going to be out and like released? It's, it's going to be out this Sunday. So it's been approved by Amazon Kindle and it's out there in the world now. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to publish it for sure on Sunday. Boom. That's awesome. Let's go. Yeah. And then the next question, and this is when all this coaching stuff is over and, and all the other stuff is over and all these things that we're talking about right now are over, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be? What do you want your athletes to say about you? What do you want people to say you were, man, you know, it's crazy. Like I remember like when I first wanted to become a coach about five, six years ago, I was still playing ball and I followed Eric Cressy like religiously, as I mentioned earlier, like I wanted to be Eric Cressy. I wanted to be the best strength and conditioning coach in the baseball community. And I still do, but I think now that's kind of shifted from being, I don't care to be the biggest name. I don't care to be the guy that has hundreds of thousands of followers or anything like that. I just care that the athletes that I did train, they always wanted to come back to me though. Like I want to be the guy that man, everybody that comes across Bill wants to go back to Bill. They love Bill. They trust Bill with their career. That's the guy that I want to be, um, you know, throughout their entirety of their career. If they're a little leaguer, high school or pro ball guy, I want them to like, when they meet me, when they train with me, I want them to be like, they come back to Bill. You know what I mean? That's to me, the biggest form of respect that you can get in this, in this world. 
Yeah. That, that's kind of what it's all about is strength coach. Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. And then the last question of the podcast, and this is kind of your billboard message or something. Maybe it is when they're, um, they're in that mining league system and they're, they're, they're not totally making it and making that jump that they want to make. Maybe they're, they're injured and injured athlete, but they're, they're, they're kind of in this valley. They're in this tough spot. What's kind of your billboard message for them to keep going and to, to push forward? Find, find something that you can measure and attack all of your training and make sure that that measurable is improving. So if you're a guy who you're, you just got released from minor league ball because your velocity is not there right now. It's only 88 to 90 and you need to get to 93. Obviously you need to throw gas for the radar gun when you chuck a baseball, but find that medicine ball and, and throw it for the radar and make sure that's improving. Find those measurables and attack your training so that those measurables improve. Don't just go blindly into training. And if you measure every couple of weeks and you see that that measurable is not improving, then maybe you got to get more specific to that training measure. But uh, yeah, I would say that's, that's kind of the big thing. And, and, and maybe even if it's, if it's not power related, if it's injury related, if your shoulder just keeps barking whenever you throw and you suck at doing inverted rows, let's see if you can get three, four, five more inverted rows by the end of the month. Can you train the muscle groups around the shoulder to be stronger? Find something to attack in your training and make sure that training is always improving it. I love that. Coach, we did it. We finished up the podcast. Thanks for right being on. on. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I, I couldn't have been uh, more obliged to do this and I, I appreciate it so much. Do you want to tell the listeners the name of the book and where they can find it again? The book is going to be called Swing Fast, A Guide to Rota- Rotational Power Development, and it's going to be on Amazon Kindle. So, Boom. We did it. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.